0: Welcome back for this week's episode of Access and Opportunity. This season, we're exploring how influential investors from across various pools of capital are helping women and multicultural-led businesses to gain access to capital. On today's episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Paul Judge, an entrepreneur and investor who is raising the city of Atlanta's profile as a technology hub by investing in multicultural startups. In addition to being the serial entrepreneur who started hyper-successful tech companies like Purewire, Luma Home, and Pindrop, Dr. Paul Judge is also the co-founder of TechSquare Labs, a seed-stage venture fund that has a strong history of investing in entrepreneurs of color. TechSquare Labs finds companies in early development and provides them with the capital and the mentorship that they need to succeed. Paul has studied, worked, and lived in Atlanta for over 20 years where he has championed the city's burgeoning tech scene by starting businesses there, investing in businesses there, and encouraging others to do so as well. Today, Paul will talk to us about how his success as an entrepreneur has impacted his lens as an investor, the importance of seeking out the best talent from diverse backgrounds, whether or not investors have a moral obligation to fund minority and women-led businesses, and what he thinks the investment landscape will look like in five years. So, Paul, thank you so much for being with us today. We're so excited to have you. Hey, I'm excited to be here, Carla. Well, I tell you, there are so many different ways that we could have this conversation. We could do Dr. Judge the investor, Dr. Judge the entrepreneur, Dr. <laughs> Judge the scientist. And at some point, I'm just warning you, I'm going to want to have all those conversations. All right. But I'm going to try to stay in my lane today because we really want our listeners to understand your perspective as an investor. Because it's one thing to be an entrepreneur, but it's another thing to really say that I'm pretty good at picking them and being able to invest and invest well. Let's take it all the way back to the BS, the MS and the Ph.D. in computer science. Where did that interest come from and how did you choose that?
1: It's funny. I grew up in, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I grew up thinking I wanted to be a chemical engineer. Right, because they wake up and see like rows of chemical refineries, mm-hmm. but my mother was a teacher and she taught typing and office occupations, and so we used to have a typewriter, which turned into a word processor, which turned into this old computer. And I learned one day that if you don't close the disk door drive, the computer would talk back to you. You can type and you get a C prompt and you type and it type back. And I was programming. Oh wow! And that turned into you know making websites. That turned into programming. I still at that time did not know that computer science was a major or a career. Wow. And so I landed at Morehouse, and my first semester, I took a computer science class along with my chemistry classes, and I said, oh, wait, this is a thing? Yeah, I choose this. <laughs> I changed majors my, my first semester, and that's how I uh, ended up focusing on computer science.
0: So what led you to think about products to create and to patent? Because you are an inventor of about 30 patented or patent pending computer technologies. What is that all about? How does this young man from Baton Rouge say, wait, and didn't even know computer science was a major, and then now you're the guy that's creating all of these technologies?
1: I started off first, like this was around the time of think of MySpace. And, you know, first it was make your page cooler than the next person's page. And then it was like, learn the latest programming languages so that I could accomplish that. And then I started working in e-commerce, like building e-commerce sites. And when we were doing that, I would see a lot of money move around on the internet, Mm -hmm. right? Big, large purchases were happening. And I wondered like, wait, where's that money going? That's a lot of money. Who's, Is it under your desk? Is it under your desk? (laughs) And so I realized there was this thing called cybersecurity. And I just started to have this thirst to understand that more, to understand where that money was going, who was going to protect it. And so I just dug in to learn as much as I could about cybersecurity.
0: And you were at the forefront. You talk about it not being a major. That wasn't even a word (laughs) 10 or 15 years ago.
1: No, it wasn't. This was 1998.
0: So, Paul, just run us through the, the bullet points of your resume. Tell us a little bit about your background.
1: So, After Morehouse, after my PhD at Georgia Tech, I was CTO of Cypher Trust that was acquired. I was then CTO of Secure Computing, which was NASDAQ-traded at the time. I co-founded a company called Purewire that was acquired by Barracuda Networks. Then I co-founded Pindrop. And since then, have been spending all of my time uh, investing in other entrepreneurs.
0: Let's talk about, Dr. Paul Judge, the investor. When did that happen? And when did you decide you wanted to do that? You have been the founder of some great companies. But what about this appetite for investing?
1: You know, I was an entrepreneur, and I was sitting at my Barracuda office, and I received a call from a professor at Georgia Tech. He said, hey, I have a student that I want you to meet. I came down to Midtown. I met for the first time VJ. And he was a grad student and he was deciding if he should start a company or go take this attractive job offer that he had. And I said, wow, this is amazing. I read his research paper and we said, let's meet again tomorrow. Let's meet again the next day. <laughs> and I found myself kind of, you know, working with him to figure out how to start this company and then, you know, writing a check to, to fund it. And I kind of got pulled into being an investor. So, wait, before you go
0: forward, tell us who Vijay is.
1: Uh, so, Vijay Balasubramanian is the co founder and CEO of Pindrop. And then, after that experience, and after Pindrop was a few years old, I said, wait a second, there's other VJs, there's other smart people with great ideas yeah. that need help. And I made it my desire to go find those folks and just meet them and help them. And dollars is one part of it, but it, it comes down to like who's a you know, very strong, eager entrepreneur that's trying to chase a big problem. And how can I help?
0: So let's talk a little bit about Tech Square Labs. Okay. It sounds like that was created really to kind of formalize what you were already doing in terms of getting yourself in the ecosystem by going to hackathons, funding some hackathons, sponsoring some other things. It sounds like, let me just build a house and they will come.
1: Yeah. yeah okay. A, a bit, a bit. I, I, my view was look, I started Pin Drop with VJ and started looking around Georgia Tech and I was like, wait, there's 20,000 students here. And it's top five, top six, and 11 different engineering programs, right? The quantity and quality of students. I need to spend more time right here. Mm -hmm. I need to get as (laughs) close as possible to this place and just walk around the block and meet folks. Mm -hmm. Hang out at the Starbucks. And then I start to say, wait, I need space. My view is how can I get the smartest people in Atlanta all under the same roof? Uh And let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. And my view is that means students, that means professors, that also means corporations in town. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, you know, we've expanded that view to also mean like people from the culture in town. And where's the place that everybody goes to go talk about hard problems and talk about changing the world and being innovative? And so that's kind of the community that we created around Tech Square. It's amazing because you kind of see it happening in Atlanta right now. You see the folks from the entertainment side kind of look across the room and look at the folks from technology and startups and the corporations sit across the room and want to meet folks from startups. And mm-hmm. so it feels like we're at a high school dance yeah. where everybody starts on their side of the gym. Right. And now people are just starting to come together and like, actually do work together. Uh, So it's a pretty exciting time right now. Yeah, yeah,
0: so it seems. But how do you get in the traffic? Because the reason I'm asking you this question is that I want this to be a playbook point for our listeners. Because the thing that you still hear in the marketplace today is I don't invest in more entrepreneurs of color or women because I can't find any. Hmm. And in the Morgan Stanley Multicultural Innovation Lab, we don't have a supply problem. We haven't had a supply problem heretofore. And it doesn't sound like you have a supply problem. So- talk to our listeners about how you get in the ecosystem so that you get a chance to see the deal flow
1: yeah so my view is go to where the smart people are right and so oftentimes that means chasing colleges and universities and where there's bright minds that are thinking about things differently thinking about the way the world should be and just get there like whether it's sit in a starbucks or go to the user groups or go to the meetups and you know, you can't just sit on the corner and stick a sign out. You have to really go immerse yourself into these communities. And oftentimes we would go and help people put on hackathons, just like help them, like write some checks to pay for travel, help them get sponsors, just do the work so that we could meet the people. And those mm-hmm. later became folks that we started companies with or invested in. And so a lot of it's years of groundwork, being part of the community just naturally. Uh, and then, I mean, in terms of like diversity, you, know, you go to where there's a diverse population, mm-hmm. right? And so oftentimes, you know, a city like we're sitting in, Atlanta, uh, by definition, the population is diverse, but then you zoom over to the uh, HBCUs. So
0: historically black colleges and universities for those who might not know.
1: Yes. And you're around these, you know, very motivated, intelligent, diverse students and understanding how they think the world should be and then helping them go make the world that way is oftentimes how I approach it. Mm
0: hmm. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other things that really matter? I'll I'll share with you. There are four things that I say outside of, is this a great business opportunity? Is this a great team that I have found that also matters in the investment decision? The founder's resilience, their resourcefulness, their risk orientation, and then their, what I like to call resistance, meaning Mm -hmm. they can fight against style drift. Mm -hmm. They start with one business plan, but somebody says, I'll buy it if you do X. And somebody Mm -hmm. says, I'll buy it if you do X plus Y. Mm -hmm. And then they go off and do all these things and then have no capacity to do X, Hmm. right? Hmm. So that's another thing that we look for. So what are some of the other things that you care about as an investor when you say, no, that's the person or or, that's the thing? Outside of it'll solve a problem. You know that. Now, what else do you look for?
1: You know, there's something uh, as far within some people that they're on a quest for excellence, right? And they they have the the discipline to do so. They're willing to dedicate the hours into doing it. And it's not about just the monetary gain, but they want to make an impact. They want to build something memorable and long lasting. And when you see that quality in someone who's going to push through, even Mm -hmm. when like all the signs and all the metrics suggest Mm -hmm. that the company is over. Yes. They're going to find that way to kind of go have that one extra meeting, one extra call. That kind of focus on excellence is key because Mm -hmm. things are going to get rocky and shaky along the way. And so that's a key quality. And sometimes it's hard to determine. It's not a test necessarily for yes, that. Yes,
0: because that's my next question. How do, you, how do you tell? What questions do you ask that give you the, uh-huh, yeah, they'll do it? So that's why I asked the question, when have you failed before? Right. And tell me how you uh, rebounded from that or you didn't. Because getting into the nitty-gritty, understanding how people dealt with an adverse situation before mm-hmm. will tell you a lot about their resistance this or lack true. thereof.
1: This is true. Mm-hmm. This is true. And sometimes if folks don't have the business entrepreneur experience, they may not have that data set that we can call on. And so sometimes we ask kind of future and forward-looking questions around where do you want to be 10 years from now or 20 years from now? Okay. And it shows if this person is kind of operating kind of within a purpose and with a long-term view and vision or if they're more coin-operated yeah. and think that, oh, here's a quick way to build something that I can go sell. Mm-hmm. That often doesn't work out because the winds are going to change markets are gonna shift and if you just thought this was a twelve or twenty four month journey to a couple quick dollars, chances are it, it won't work ah, out.
0: Ah very good point.
1: And so sometimes you get a lot of those. Someone yes, that thinks you're they right. have like a flash in a pan, quick idea, and it's, it's hard to really go stand behind
0: that's those. That's a very good point because I've met a lot of entrepreneurs who are trying to manage to a sale. Yeah. They're not trying to manage to actually grow the business. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. What about coachability? Where's that on your? <laughs> uh-huh. I wish you yeah. I wish listeners you could see his face.
1: <laughs> Coachability. It's a fine balance, right? Because you don't want someone that will listen to all of even my ideas, because I'm not always right. And so you definitely don't want folks that would listen to anyone that they run across the, on the street. But you don't want someone that's so stubborn that they, they don't listen at all. And so it's a fine balance. And I have to I have to kind of control myself because kind of the the entrepreneur in me will often get pretty prescriptive Mm -hmm. about, you know, uh, execution path. Yes. And if someone's very coachable, they may listen to that verbatim and and start operating based on that. And what we really want is to help them uncover the answers themselves and look at things in different ways. So I have to balance that just given my background as entrepreneur. But no, it's key, Mm -hmm. though, that, that folks are willing to have an open mind about what the business needs to look like even in the different stages right it changes and that they're actually willing to go find new advisors along the way ah Someone that's not only coachable, but also willing to kind of expand their set of coaches mm-hmm. through the life of the company mm-hmm. uh, ha- has been key.
0: Yeah. And that's the resourcefulness piece that I was talking about. Yeah. Are they willing to actually leverage every relationship that they have in order to get what they need in the next relationship? Yes. But, and the reason why I think that's important is that often people don't have the muscle for asking for help. No. Hmm. right and if you've been a type a personality and you know if, if if i'm honest especially if you've been a person of color who felt like you've done it on your own asking for help is a tough thing yeah especially if you've been turned down once or twice then you tend to not want to go back but you got to have that resourcefulness and that muscle to to keep getting to the people that you want to get to that's
1: so true yeah so true
0: so it's been something that i've trying to measure. One of the things that Frida K. client Klein said to us is that one of the reasons that she loves investing with entrepreneurs of color and our women is that often they have had a lived experience that makes them uniquely qualified to mm-hmm. be able to solve the problem because they've been in it in a way that nobody else has and they have, in fact, found something where there's a huge market opportunity. How do you feel about something like that as one of the criteria, if you will, for investing in an entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Folks of color just have so many of the qualities that you want entrepreneurs to have. Oh, stop right
0: there. What are they?
1: You know, perseverance, grit, you know, original creative thinking, resourcefulness. These are things that just to survive as a minority in this country, you have developed these skills across your life. And those are absolutely the skills that separate successful from unsuccessful entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so those qualities that make a great entrepreneur are there. And from there, it's about equipping them with the tools to actually go and do the business practices, and actually write code, and then raise money, and then get customers, and so forth. But so many of the qualities are there. But then, to your point, and Frida's point, they've seen problems that others haven't seen. Problems that you know, average person walking around Soma is not going to think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that be you know problems in black hair care, or peer-to-peer lending, and payday loans, or whether that be problems around babysitting and childcare that our communities experience that are problems that need to be solved, that are billion-dollar opportunities, that just aren't a problem in certain neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And so I I love those moments.
0: Wow. How do you figure out who your partners are going to be from an investment standpoint? Because it sounds like you have an edge over a lot of investors because you spent time investing in the ecosystem. So people know who you are. They're likely to show you deals. So you, I would assume, but don't let me say this if it's not true, have no problem with flow. Most deals that get done, especially with women and people of color, you end up seeing them or knowing about them, correct?
1: I see a lot of them. You know, part of it is being here a long time being accessible, being part of a few different communities, right? Georgia Tech, as well as Morehouse, as well as like the chamber in the city. And so we're very fortunate that we do get to see a lot of the activity in town. Mm -hmm.
0: That's a playbook point for investors who say they don't know how to get in. You have connected to several different networks. Go ahead.
1: Oh, absolutely. And even I'll zoom in a little bit on on that. If you think about take a Georgia Tech, for example, is not only interacting with, like, the incubator, but also understanding and having relationships with the deans, but then also, like, the professors that have expertise Mm -hmm. in a particular area to know what every research lab on campus is working on. Yes. Right? And so what happens is we get a phone call pretty early when a new grad student or professor wants to spin out a piece of research. Our new undergrad has an idea that's similar. And so we've been fortunate that kind of the community calls us early for things like that. And then, yeah, when you think of folks of color, you absolutely want to make sure they're getting the meeting, And you're giving feedback, even if it's not the right fit for you to invest, kind of giving feedback and guidance on on what they could do to Mm -hmm. be a better entrepreneur and better business.
0: Yes. And that was the other point I was going to bring up. What advice would you give to other investors who say, again, I can't find any. It sounds like the first piece of advice is to connect to the different ecosystems. Put yourself in a place where the intellectual resources are plentiful, and then take meetings and give feedback, which was part of our recommendation from our trillion dollar report last year.
1: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Go to where the diversity is. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, we know where the capital is. And oftentimes, you look around, you're where the capital is, and you look around, you don't see a lot of diversity. Uh, But if you get on a plane. You know, there's diversity across the U.S. There's diversity in cities like Atlanta, cities like New York, like D.C. If you go to where folks are and sit down with them in their spaces, access is there. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes it means like leaving your office, maybe leaving your town and going to the people Mm -hmm. or, you know, adding diversity on your own team. Right. As a VC firm, Mm -hmm. you know, if everyone in the firm looks alike, then entrepreneurs aren't going to necessarily be comfortable Folks in the firm aren't going to necessarily do the, the pattern matching. And so I think starting off with diversity on your team provides a significant advantage to a firm in being able to expand their diverse deal flow. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So let me ask you this question. To what extent do investment firms and investors have a moral obligation to be intentional when thinking about inclusive investment strategies?
1: I think we could skip over a moral obligation and think just even about the fiduciary obligation that investors have to maximize capital appreciation to their LPs. And if you look at that obligation, it's about kind of finding markets that are untapped, finding entrepreneurs that are underrepresented. It's about expanding the way of thinking within their portfolios. That alone will lead intelligent folks to think about how to increase diversity in their portfolio and in their team. So we can forget about more obligation, just look at the fiduciary obligation and responsibility, and that will get us there. That will increase diversity on teams and in portfolios.
0: Fair point and an excellent playbook point. You penned an article for TechCrunch called Greed Trump's Race, in which you wrote, and I quote, in many cases, people spend too much energy complaining that the playing field is not completely level instead of spending that energy playing on the field and leveraging the opportunities. So do you still believe this to be true?
1: I do. I do believe that there's a lot more tension to diversity or the lack thereof in technology and in venture capital today than there was at that time. So I I appreciate that kind of the world is acknowledging the problem. Mm -hmm. There's not yet enough solutions and kind of prescriptive advice showing up to address it. So some look at it as an excuse still. Some look at it and say, oh, the playing field's not fair. So I'm going to sit here and make a career out of kind of complaining about it. Mm -hmm. Right. And kind of been a spokesperson that just kind of repeats the obvious facts versus getting up. And, you know, like you all did it and investing in entrepreneurs. Right. And and coaching and mentoring or or working with folks. And so I do think there's a set of folks that have unfortunately found that there's an opportunity in just kind of complaining about the playing field Mm -hmm. versus kind of putting the cleats on and getting out there and and doing work. So we, we still have work to do to To address that.
0: Do you think in three to five years that we'll still be in the same place where there is a gross inequity of the distribution of capital to entrepreneurs of color and women? Or do you think the more we put the points on the board and elevate the conversation, the faster it will change?
1: I think it's moving quickly right now. It's Mm -hmm. progressing Mm -hmm. for sure. In the last five years, you know, we can now name a set of entrepreneurs, founders of color that have built meaningful companies and raised series A and then raised series B, growing companies, profitable companies. And that was much harder to do five years ago, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think a couple things are happening, right? One is becoming cheaper to, to start a company, mm-hmm. right? And so a lot of the traditional or hurdles that we've had have been able to raise friends and family around. It's becoming cheaper to go deploy on AWS or on Google Cloud. It's becoming cheaper to go have like a MailChimp account and reach customers. Those things are are to the advantage of typically underprivileged uh, founders. I also think entrepreneurs overall are getting better at Mm go-to-market and doing it more efficiently, right? So now you can take a company from zero to its first million much faster than you could five years ago. And so as kind of these entrepreneurship skills become more widely known and available and that knowledge is online, it's to the benefit of underrepresented founders, right? We can kind of log in and, and read more of it. But with that said, there's still not enough capital showing up to where all the talent is. Mm -hmm. There's still not enough diversity on the teams of most VC firms. There's not active funds in the rest of America where a lot of the diverse talent is. And so there's a lot left to do over the next five years. But no, I think it's absolutely moving Mm -hmm. uh, and moving at a faster pace than it has in the past.
0: All right, lightning round. This is my favorite part. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and you tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. So are you ready? I'm ready. All
1: right. Favorite book or magazine? Favorite book. Say hard things about hard things. Favorite magazine? You know, I I use Twitter as a magazine nowadays.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. City or the countryside? City. Winter or summer? Summer. App that you use the most? Uh, Slack. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Email or phone call? Email. If you had a talk show, who would you want to be your first guest? Obama. What's one word that you'd like to use to describe your legacy? Greatness. All right. Well, Dr. Paul Judge, thank you very much.
1: Hey, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you all for listening to this episode of Access and Opportunity. I'm your host, Carla Harris. In the next episode, we'll be having a terrific conversation with Monica Mantilla, founder and CEO of Altura Capital. See you then.